0: This episode of 80 Days is brought to you by HarryBaby.com, the company that makes the funniest Irish-themed t-shirts. HarryBaby Baby shipped to 71 countries last year, and to celebrate its 10th anniversary in 2017, HarryBaby Baby aims to deliver to all 196 countries in the world by St. Patrick's Day 2018. You can help by ordering now from HarryBaby.com and use the promo code 80DAYS, that's 80DAYS, to get 10% off. Hey everyone, I uh, just want to drop in a quick couple of housekeeping notes at the top of the episode. I'm just joined by Joe today as Mark is off on his honeymoon. We just want to let you guys know that there's a, a couple of changes coming to season two. The first thing is that we have a brand new sponsor this season, which we're very grateful for, uh, Harry Baby. They are also providing the official 80 Days t-shirt, which you can buy on their website, HarryBaby.com. And we'll provide a link to that t-shirt in the show notes. Speaking of which, we have extensive show notes, if just in case you didn't know. And this season, we'll be changing them slightly because our episodes are somewhat longer than they usually are in this coming season. But you will be better able to navigate them by using the timestamps that will now be included in every show notes. So you can skip to different sections
1: uh, whenever is handy for you. Yeah, so the idea is... Um... Basically, we were very lucky over Christmas to run a Kickstarter campaign, and we got a lot of backers um, supporting us in the making of Season 2. That's meant we've been able to do a lot more research. We've been able to get a few guests onto a few of our episodes. um, And as a result, the episodes are a little bit longer than they were last season. We hope you like that. um, But it will mean that they're probably longer than the average commute, uh, unless you're very unlucky. Uh, And so if that's how you listen... (laughs) It might be convenient for you to see that, you know, at 20 minutes, we start the section on 19th century history or, at, you know, 35 minutes, there's the civil war. And that means if you have to stop listening at some point, you can always find your place again. Uh, so the show notes should be available on your device as you listen or are available on the website at 80dayspodcast.com. com. will it help you to navigate. And there's a lot more information there about sources we consulted and usually some videos and music as well.
0: And the last thing that we want to mention after thanking everyone again for their generous contributions via Kickstarter is that you can always get in touch with us and ask us questions or, you know, uh, inquire as to what's happening with the podcast or make suggestions for upcoming episodes or really just whatever you like. Uh, you can contact us on Facebook or Twitter by searching 80 Days Podcast. You can also email us at 80 dayspodcastgmailcom at gmail.com. And lastly, we'd really encourage anybody who enjoyed season one and is listening to season two to leave us a review on iTunes, as that's the best way to increase our visibility. And of course, you can also tell a friend.
1: Yes, um, I mean we've been getting really nice feedback from people since season one went out, uh, and it, it really it's really nice for us to hear that you're enjoying it and it's it's uh, useful to you. So um, the more we can do to make this podcast what our listeners want, the better. So uh, let us know tell people about it and let's keep on growing the last thing
0: is that we're switching to a bi-weekly release schedule so you can expect an episode every second week for the next 20 weeks or so thanks everybody for listening and i will get you back to the regularly scheduled programming with the episode on singapore
2: i am willing to wager twenty thousand
0: pounds that i will make a tour of the world
2: in 80 days or less Do you accept I accept um, i accept train leaves for dover this evening Good evening,
0: gentlemen. Hello, everyone, and welcome to 80 Days in Exploration Podcasts. Brought to you by three history and geography nerds in an internet powered balloon, this podcast is dedicated to discussing little known countries, territories, settlements, and cities from around the world. And welcome to the start of season two. My name is Luke Kelly. I'm broadcasting from Hong Kong, and joining me today are Mark Boyle in Surrey, in the UK,
1: and Joe Byrne in Bern, Switzerland.
0: And today we'll be discussing Singapore, the Lion City. This tiny island city state is home to 5.5 million people and is located just off the southern tip of the Malay Peninsula, just one degree north of the equator. It's a country without seasons, remaining hot and humid year round, and gained full independence just 51 years ago although it wasn't a cause for celebration at the time, as we'll see. Since then, uh, Singapore has developed rapidly as an Asian tiger economy, despite its lack of any natural resources, and today is one of the most well-developed and successful cities in the world. So Joe, what can you tell us about the early history of Singapore?
1: Uh, The early days of Singapore are poorly documented, um, (laughs) which is, I feel like a lot of our episodes start. (laughs) Anyway, around about 100, the the Greco-Roman cartographer and and historian Ptolemy identified a place on his map uh, that he called Sabana, which is possibly this island, though it's hard to be sure because his maps are not perfect. And there are a lot of
0: islands in that in that region.
1: Yes, there are quite a few islands in Southeast Asia. uh, yeah. uh In uh, the two hundreds, we get something a little more solid, where the Chinese record a place called Pulau Dong, which is probably a transliteration of a Malay name, which isn't in the in the record, but that sounds very much like the Malay word for island at the end. And that describes Singapore as this island at the end of the Malay Peninsula. In the twelve hundreds, we get a small fishing port called uh, Tumasik, which is the I think Malay word for just just fish town or or fishing town. So when this island becomes really uh, relevant in a larger sense is around the thirteen hundreds, almost exactly the year thirteen hundred. Um. There is a legend in the, the Malay annals uh, about a prince called Sangnila Ultama. And he was a prince of the Sri Srivijay- Let me try that again. Joe, the, did
2: you mispronounce something? I
1: did mispronounce it. Oh,
2: you worm. You filthy worm.
1: He there a, are a lot of consonants in this word. He was a prince of the Sri Vijaya. <laughs> uh, Sri Vijaya. Empire. There we go. Sri okay. Vijaya. Well done, Joe. This was a, a big Buddhist empire, ruled a lot of the, the world around Malaysia and Sumatra. And in the 1300s, it was coming to its end as various rivals in the region started to, to cause trouble, such as uh, Siam, which is modern-day Thailand, and also some other empires based in Java. And this prince, um, Sang Nilo Altama, according to the legend, was the grandson of alexander the great which maybe seemed, seems unlikely to me
2: in the 1300s alexander the great was well well dead there, there, there's
1: there's that yeah, yeah. Uh, but also geography and well e- ethnicity and
2: alexander did a lot of banging he was like uh the the, the western uh genghis genghis, genghis, genghis Kahn. Kahn, Yeah,
1: yeah yeah sure yeah um, he got to India so Anyway yeah. it's, I, I, feel like those, <laughs> I feel like this is one <laughs> oh, of those great for nothing I feel like this is one of those Stories that, um, that gets told That isn't entirely true He also had a, a crown Which he claimed was the crown of Solomon The great, the, the Jewish emperor uh, Which right. also sounds A bit fishy I'm to get, me I'm
2: getting a theme here
1: <laughs> uh, So anyway Sang Niel was hunting on the neighbouring island of Bintan, where he was also a prince. And he was chasing a stag. He went off by himself and chased it up a hill. The stag vanished and he came to the top of the hill and he sees across the water this white sandy beach of the the next island over. And um, he asks his attendants, what what is this place? And they say, oh, it's it's Temasek, It's, it's another island. And he decides he needs to go there. This is his destiny. So they get in a boat and they are sailing across and there's a terrible storm and they try to throw everything overboard to calm the waters, but they, the storm continues and so the prince takes his crown and throws it into the sea and as a gift to the sea gods or whatever. And the, the waters calm and they sail safely to Temasek, And this may be a symbolism kind of suggesting that the, the power was now moving from Pelambang to To Singapore. And this is the kind of symbolic uh, gesture that represents that in the story. And then when he arrives on land, he sees this fabulous creature er- er- emerge from the rocks, which had like a red mane and a white belly and stuff. He didn't know what it was, but one of his attendants told him it was a lion. And he went, oh, a lion, how auspicious. And the, the word for lion in both Sanskrit and Tamil, is, is Singa, So um, he decided he would call this Lion City, Singapore, And thus, Singapore was founded. Uh, now, there's no suggestion that lions ever lived in Singapore or the region nearby.
2: I was going to ask.
1: Uh, might have been a tiger, but probably not even that. Who knows? It's a good story. Um, but it wasn't a lion. We also get in the 19, in the thirteen twenties the Mongol and Chinese empires notice this place. Um, the the prince is brought to is recognised by the Chinese empire as the ruler of Timusik, and um, it's the first settlement of Chinese outside China that is recorded. So lots of Chinese people ended up moving here for various reasons,
0: which is still true today, I suppose. We well,
1: hope very much so. Um, but yeah, just a little bit at that point. And then in 1402, the final king of, um, of Temesuk, uh is called Parameswara or Iskandar Shah, depending who you talk to. Hmm. Uh, he seems to have converted to Islam, which is where the name change comes in. Uh, Iskandar Shah, of course, is a very Persian sounding yeah. uh, Muslim name. Hmm. So he, the story is that he accused one of his concubines of adultery and publicly shamed her.
2: That's ironic. Uh, Did he do it on Facebook or just no, Instagram? No, like I
1: think she had to walk through the city
2: naked. Oh, geez. Okay. You know, That kind of...
1: A Cersei Lannister. Story. Exactly. And her father was one of his, his main courtiers and didn't like this. So he colludes with the Magipat... The, Magipit, the Magipahit, uh with, with these lads. With these lads. <laughs> to um, <laughs> invade and he'll help them out and recognise them. So, um... Yeah, they they conquer Singapore, or Singapuru, as it's now called, leave it in ruins, and Parameswara flees to Malacca, converts to Islam, and founds the Sultanate of Malacca, which becomes a major power in the region for quite a long time afterwards. It leads to the dominance of the Malay language in in what would become Malaysia, uh, and is the sultanate from which all the other sultanates around the area trace their ancestry. And um, just before we get into the white man turning up, there's one cool story I'd like to tell about a. There's a poor Malay fisherman called Badang, uh, who apparently caught a genie in his nets. In in the Singapore River, he wished to be the strongest man in the world. This is a legend, by the way. Genie, not historical fact. Um, <laughs> genies are not historical. He wrestles with all the strong men around Southeast Asia, including India's greatest giant. And he eventually beats him, and to celebrate, he throws a rock into the river. Uh, Later on, inscriptions were added to this rock. And the Singapore stone, as it becomes called, was noted by early colonists. Um, It had written on a script that no one could identify. It was probably some kind of Sanskrit, but it got eroded quite a lot. And then the British blew it up in 1843 in order to make way for a wider... They blew, the blew up, up the rock. Heart. They blew up a, a rock with historical, <laughs> and nice. some of it's now in a museum, but that, that's a, a little legend I came across. It's quite nice. So anyway, in 1511, the Portuguese capture Malacca and the Sultanate here falls. So the Sultanate founded by this exiled, um, Singaporean fella doesn't last that long, lasts a hundred years. After this, Brunei becomes the main Islamic center. Uh, so go back and listen to our episode on Brunei. Um, it becomes the mm-hmm. senior sultanate in the area, um, and the Sultan of Malacca, Alaudin Riayat Shah II, fled to Johor, which is just across the water from Singapore. So the center of
0: yeah, that's that's the name. That's what the the Strait uh, between Singapore and Malaysia, State modern name Johor. Malaysia, is called yeah, now. Cool. Is the Straits of Johor. So Johor is the city
1: yeah. just there on the mainland. So the 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 power is moving back down towards the end of the the peninsula. In 1578, Portugal destroys most of the settlements at Singapore and it sinks into obscurity. And in 1641, the Dutch East India Company, the VOC, they capture the island uh, in an alliance with Johor and start trading and controlling the Straits of Malacca themselves. And because this region has become an important trading place, you get an influx of Arab traders, Jewish traders, uh, and then also Indians and Chinese come in big numbers. Um, and we've got the British East India Company operating in the region, but not really operating. Yeah, in around Malaya and Penang, but not really getting into this part of the world
0: yet. Mm, They'll become a big, a big part of the story pretty soon, though. Oh yes, -hmm. yeah. So the uh, British East India Company, a very large trading organization, basically uh, like a almost like an. like an empire in its its own right like an empire an army in its own right yeah as a as a company i can
1: never look at this period of history and and i never cease to be amazed by this notion Mm. of companies colonizing the world it's like i get countries colonizing i understand that but can i go no this is company property what is india it's just really
2: how they decided to organize it it was just yeah, yeah, easier no, for them to just... administer because it, it's basically the British Empire. And there's a lot of money yeah. to be made, I guess. So how did they how did they come to be involved in uh, Singapore, Mark? Well, as Joe said, they had already um, a few areas their, under their control, uh, in particular uh, Penang, uh, I think also uh, Ben Kulin, but they're very, very small little trading pockets. And they were keen to have a sort of a, a trade hub in the region. And the main guy to look to here is stamford raffles um he's one of the few names I knew about Singapore before we started this, most famously because of the raffles Hotel in Singapore, uh, which is one of the most famous hotels in the world
0: which I visited recently actually it's a lovely place very nice and yeah, did you
1: uh did you stay there
0: I did not stay there no uh it's it's a very expensive hotel to stay in these days but uh I did get a walk around it, which is it's yeah it's beautifully preserved and you know a very very nice, kind of big colonial building. Like it really
2: stands out uh, right in the middle of Singapore. And is is the
1: hotel from this from this era, or is it just named in his honor?
2: No, oh, no, it's from about nineteen ten, nineteen twenty thereabouts. It was uh, still, you know, still a colonial era. But uh, I mean, a hundred years on from from this period. But there are tons of things that are named after Raffles in in Singapore nowadays.
0: Like he's still a a, a monumental figure in its history.
1: And there's a monument.
2: There are. There's a, at least Literally one. Literally monumental. Maybe two. Yeah, they have a
1: white uh, and a black statue of him.
2: Okay, that's strange. Yeah. Uh, uh, did you have the cocktail, Luke? The
0: Singapore Sling? No, uh, I did have the Singapore Sling in a different bar in Singapore, but we didn't get one in uh, Raffles Hotel once again because it's very expensive. Did it?
2: Uh, did it totally kick your ass? Because I've seen what goes into it, and it's it is fierce. It, this it, is a fierce? It's quite drink. a drink. Quite a drink. Uh, I would recommend trying one if you get the chance.
1: Care to explain?
2: So it's uh, three parts gin, one and a half parts cherry liqueur, three quarters a part Cointreau, three quarters apart part Benedictine, and then some lime, pineapple juice, and grenadine. So super sugary, super tropical super boozy so, sounds colonial uh, mm. yeah but it was uh founded in uh founded invented in uh in raffles hotel okay. uh so anyway all, all that feeds into just the the legend of stanford raffles um so the guy himself uh born in 1781 born off the coast of jamaica so a proper product of the british colonial system uh his family weren't super wealthy they were kind of speculating on um on business in North America. It didn't work out with the uh, American Revolution and the War of Independence and so on. Oh, yeah. Uh, In 1795, he started working for the British East India Company. Uh, Ten years later, uh, he was sent to Penang. So from 1805 onwards, uh, this kind of uh, uh, Malay areas are his focus and his speciality. Um, As we've already kind of mentioned, the Dutch were the dominant power in this area. And the British just wanted to kind of just get a little foot in the door here. They had Penang, they had a few other small territories, but they really wanted somewhere to base their their trade. But they also um, didn't want to antagonize the Dutch, I suppose. Exactly, because if they, they woke the Dutch up, the Dutch would basically squash them because they had uh, such a, a huge interest in the area. And mm. they didn't want to scare the Dutch, but they did want a little a little taste. Um. So Raffles apparently uh, also met Napoleon. He took a trip to... Uh, Europe at one point And on the way He stopped on Into the island of Saint Helena oh, right. Where uh, Napoleon Was in exile And he described Napoleon as um, Oh I, I wrote it down here uh, This man is a monster Who has none of the feelings Of the real man <laughs> uh, He also described him As abrupt Rude And authoritative Is it possible uh, That he was
1: a bit Miffed about being an exile Like
2: Oh yeah Napoleon That's was, like I was... visited
1: a guy In death row And he was really testy it's Sort of
2: he had about 10 minutes with Napoleon and Napoleon basically, he seemed seemed like a weird dude from the first hand account. He just kind of didn't really make eye contact and was just interested in facts and figures and stuff mm-hmm. uh, and wasn't very personable at all. But as you say, he was imprisoned in the middle of, of the Atlantic. And who so. the hell was this Raffles guy? Exactly. Johnny No Um So uh, Raffles is also made lieutenant governor of Java. Um, he gets a bit of military experience there. There's a bit of a military campaign. Um, And generally, his stock is rising within the British East India Company. In 1818, 1819, he joined up with a a local English uh, big knob, William Farquhar, to negotiate ownership of Singapore. uh, And the negotiations are, I mean, eye-bleedingly complex because nobody knew who was in charge. Well, Raffles was a
1: a keen student of Malay culture and Malay history.
2: Mm. But they kept negotiating with different chieftains and the chieftains themselves knew that the, you know, the authority of the island was kind of in dispute anyway. So they kept negotiating with different chieftains and weren't really sure if they got an agreement from one, did that count for everybody? Or who is the main, who do they really need to convince Mm. that, the British East India Company actually owned Singapore. But
1: but, but he, he knew he needed... Basically, he needed a sultan to give the blessing.
2: And I think also the Dutch were pulling the strings oh, from the outside that. as well yeah. in competition. So they're playing off these different chieftains against yeah, each other yeah. a little bit. Anyway, so super complex.
1: He gets a treaty signed by someone, though, in the end.
2: Yes, um... And oh, William Farquhar, just trivia, trivia on this guy. Uh, he is the great, 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 great grandfather of Justin Trudeau, the Canadian <laughs> Prime Minister. Wow. Uh, yeah, apparently. So the, the main, they established Singapore. Uh, and the main thing to, to take away is that it's a free port, hmm. uh, which means that you you don't pay tax on goods traded through the port. And this was a uh, free ports were a huge part of international trade at the time. Uh, but kind of and like, kind of a
1: new idea
0: this year. Wondered like in this. And that was that was Raffles' big plan to like attract people to Singapore because he's he's sort of like I I want people to come here, but I don't I don't know why they would stop here necessarily. So exactly. So he's like exactly. I'm gonna get let them fr- trade freely here, and
1: then I'm gonna build up a trade port. But not take any of the not take tariffs, not take yeah taxes, not which is great in practice, duties. but doesn't allow you to make any money necessarily.
2: Yeah. But it, except that you you have people coming there and they're buying and selling goods and you get taxes in other ways. Yes, yeah. So it's kind of like... Uh, and it
1: also takes taxes from Malacca.
2: From the Dutch, yeah. exactly. So it was a big competition with the Dutch. um, And he was very keen on organisation and planning. Uh, he tried to plan the settlement of, of Singapore very strictly. But once, after 1819, very quickly, he, he left. Uh, I think he... he I don't think he went back to England. I think he went uh, to somewhere else in the Malays. He went
1: back to Bengal, and he, he he was still the lieutenant governor yeah. governor of of somewhere else. He was just dilly dallying around, founding colonies he hadn't been asked to found.
2: And uh, he left this Farquhar guy uh, in charge, and Farquhar was very laissez-faire. There seemed to be, uh, I mean rapid growth of the of the the settlement as a trade center but unorganized uh lots of crime prostitution gambling so much uh, opium slave trade uh it, not, i believe it's not around this stuff. time mark
0: that the i don't know if you read this the the colony uh earned the name sin galore as in like Ooh. it's kind of yeah full of a, a den of of you know villainy and scum and You know, isn't uh, isn't
1: that the, isn't that Moss Eisley in Star Wars? Is that? uh, Yeah, well, I guess you could draw a comparison there, yeah. Den of villainy and scum have I seen. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So anyway, Raffles comes back and he's, what the F have you done with my colony? You big fool, Farquhar. Uh, And they have a massive falling out. Uh, Farquhar then, I think, sued him. uh, And it ended up that both of them ended up going back to England around the same time. And their arguments followed them, but whereas Raffles just kind of, kind of, kind of left, Farquhar was given this huge send off. Uh, all of the different uh, ethnic groups representing the Singapore apparently all loved him. Uh, he went home to Perth, Scotland, and built two mansions, one with a huge billiard hall for his many, many friends to have their cool parties <laughs> in. Uh, and Raffles, he seemed a bit, a bit of a downer to be honest. Like, uh, he, he had a lot of tragedy in his life. Most of his family uh, perished. His first wife, many of his kids because they were living in, in Malaysia and there was a lot of uh, malaria and so on. Uh, and Raffles died at the age of 44. Uh, wow. So he did found the colony and then he kind of whipped it back into shape uh, after having been away for a while. And then he kind of immediately died. He
1: totally only spent like a year and a half or so in, in the colony. If that, if that. Like spread yeah, out yeah, over little. a couple of years. But his kind of fundamental founding principles is kind of freedom, you know, freedom of trade, freedom of... What religion behavior you know, freedom of he was had all these enlightenment ideas about you yeah. know happiness people will achieve happiness through freedom and through the government backing off And he was
0: he was very meticulous in actually planning uh, the yes. colony as well like he kind of mapped the whole thing out about like this is where the, the square is going to be and here's where people are going to trade and this is you know a park is going to go here and this sort of thing like he, he'd had the whole thing envisioned in his
2: mind and that's mind. why he was so annoyed with Farquhar who's just uh, yes hookers and opium can I interest anybody in hookers and opium Uh, and that was basically his plan for the city Um, so this was 1823 Uh, Raffles and Farquhar now are are, are gone Um, and the Dutch are paying attention to this rapidly growing uh, colony right in their center. and it's just Chinese
1: and Indians flowing in and in and in and in and staying there
2: yeah, I mean, particularly Chinese. And at this time, technically, Singapore comes under the, the administration of British India, of uh, the governor of West Bengal. Oh, yes. Uh, so it's technically regarded by the empire as India at this point. Um so in 1824, there's a formal agreement with the the Dutch on a range of different things. Um, around this time, the Napoleonic Wars had been occurring. We just mentioned Napoleon there. And when the Dutch, when Holland was taken over by Napoleon, the British basically tried to steal as much of their colonies as possible on the QT. Classic uh, British. And- And this uh, agreement allowed the British to give some of those colonies back to the Dutch. But it also meant the Dutch would acknowledge Singapore as British territory, um, which did a lot to secure uh, Singapore's future from potential, you know, Dutch sanctions or attacks or or what you. So
1: we get the line between British Malaya and the Dutch East Indies, which are Indonesia today.
2: So from here on, uh, Singapore continues to grow apace. Uh, From 1830 to 1867, the population grew by by four times whereas the governing staff um did not grow at all uh in 1850 there were 60,000 people and 12 police so oh, wow. yeah really struggling with the levels of lawless that is that is
1: laissez faire all right
2: and as you say, there was a huge influx of immig- immigrants, mainly uh, Indian sepoys, which just, just, is a general shorthand for Indian uh, soldiers mm-hmm. uh, working for the British East India Company, trying to keep order. And Chinese uh, refugees, immigrants, mostly indentured laborers. Mostly from South and
1: Southeast China, like... Uh, fleeing Hina the Opium and, Wars, yeah. And uh, Gongdong and exactly. those places. So they, they would have spoken Hokkien and Cantonese mostly.
0: And at this time there was like a a bunch of kind of secret societies and gangs and that sort of thing uh, that were sort of yeah. basically controlling the city uh, or the, you know, the, T- to the, to me, the they sound
1: town. kind of like triads. They don't use exactly, yeah, like triads. exactly like triads, exactly that. Yeah. Which uh, you may remember um, from our episode on Kowloon. Yes.
2: So anyway, in 1867, they are included in this, this new thing called the Straits Settlements Crown Colony, which is basically all of these small little uh, enclaves of British influence around the kind of Malaysia, modern day Malaysia, Indonesia, um, and now removed entirely administratively from from uh, India. Okay, so th- these uh, are now ruled from London? Uh, well, they're ruled locally uh, in the way that India is ruled locally, but they're, they're now no longer kind of just lumped in with India. Yeah. They're now seen as, as important in their own right. Um, and just one more guy to mention as the the colony develops in the 1800s is uh, William Pickering. Uh, in acknowledgement of the fact that there was so many Chinese there, um, some were aware of the potential for the Chinese to beca- to become uh, marginalised and exploited. Um, and William Pickering spoke many Chinese dialects, and he helped to uh, I guess cater Singapore more towards the Chinese population. And he helped, in particular, the translations apparently. Um, He changed the translations that as they were. The translation for judge was demon, (laughs) and translation for police was big dogs. Uh, So he kind of a little unhelpful, yeah, in a soft way. Kind of smoothed out a lot of that stuff. Really cool guy in his own right. He helped to quell race riots in Singapore by marching up and down the street playing the bagpipes, (laughs) Uh, and everyone go what what (laughs) the f is that guy doing? And it would like just confusion. It's the guy just playing bagpipes. Going on to World War One. Just before um, you do,
1: Mark, could I go on? Could I just just interject with one thing. Um, the an important moment for Singapore was when the Suez Canal opened in 1869.
0: Very true. Yes, hmm. that basically directed a lot of uh, trade right past. That was built Singapore.
1: by our old friend Ferdinand de Lesseps.
2: Ferdinand de Lesseps. Our
1: old friend, <laughs> who uh, this was a successful canal as opposed to his failure in Panama, uh, and it it saw an increase in fifty percent um of of the trade of the British East India Company in five years. So nice. like Singapore yeah. boomed as a result of this. Because now you could sail directly from Europe to to this part of the world and trade your tea and your tin. Yeah, um, so ships
0: going between Europe and China basically or Asia in general pass right by Singapore after coming out coming through the Suez Canal. Yeah, you there's know, only that, two that routes. Cuts. It's
1: it's it's past Singapore or it's further south through another gap in, in the islands. So and Singapore a, is
0: a shorter route, I think. So and a free yeah, port. It just makes sense. And it's a free port, so why wouldn't you stop there?
1: And the population gets up to hundred thousand people here, having been a thousand when Raffles founded the place. Um, so that's what fifty years or so, I guess? Yeah, about fifty almost exactly fifty years. You have a hundred yeah. time increase. Um and the important trade goods are tin from Malaysia mm. and Rubber trees, which were secretly imported from Brazil, uh, and they became yeah somebody really snuck
0: a bunch of uh, sea, like rubber tree seeds out of out of uh, Brazil, right? Because they Brazil kind of wanted to keep a lid on the on the rubber, you know, rubber tree. It's a perfect
1: perfect environment for rubber, but it's not an indigenous tree. So I'm yeah. just
2: seeing the the headline of the day: Singapore rubbers up. That's, uh, <laughs> that's a solid headline. Oh yeah, <laughs> rubber up Singapore.
0: That leads us nicely into uh the 20th century mark uh you want to tell us a little bit about the effect of world war one or how singapore geared
2: up for that particular conflict sure well it wasn't really affected by world war one lucky them um there wasn't so a huge much amount of fighting II, that area of the world yeah yeah um but just to mention that the Treaty of Versailles, when that was signed, uh, ending World War I, it was seen as a huge triumph for, for all the Allied por- powers, uh, France and so on. Yay,
1: new um, territories.
2: Well, also just a celebration, but it was a celebration pointedly that the Chinese in Singapore did not join in on. Uh, they refused to celebrate, and there was actually some some violence around the time, and just to mention that this is seen by some historians as setting the stage for a more uh, formalized political anti-empirical uh, movement, which sets the stage for Lee Kuan Yew uh, thirty-five years into the future and his People's Action Party. But we'll go into that uh, later on. Um,
1: but there was an element so, of of you know the war had allegedly been about liberating small countries, and then and yet
0: Singapore remained a part of the empire. You just
1: swap Germany's colonies into your own colonies. Yeah. yeah. So you know, if 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 the there was a feeling among citizens or or subjects in colonies that if we were fighting for liberty, why aren't you liberating the German colonies rather than just yeah. taking them? Uh, and well, what does what does that mean for us? There was a kind of it, a sense of hypocrisy. I, I, it's the impression I've gotten from.
2: Yeah, I mean, but they were totally right. Oh sure, <laughs> but yeah, 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 but they didn't the know that. Empire. they're super hypo- hypocritical. I mean. Uh... I guess a loss of innocence, maybe? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so just moving on, post-World War One, Singapore became massively important uh, militarily as a, a cornerstone of British strategy in Asia.
0: Also, the rubber plantations were were obviously very important. You know, uh, rubber becomes more of a, a, an important product in a lot of different types of manufacturing after, yes. the, after the war.
2: So they could see that Japan was becoming more militaristic, uh, and they decided they needed a strategy to... Uh, protect themselves and their interests in Asia. They could see also that the US was becoming very powerful uh as a navy and militarily, but they decided early on that they could always basically assume that the US would either be neutral or on their side in any any major conflict. Also it was just after World War One where they had been allies, so I guess that there still would have been a lot of good feeling and bonhomie around the around the US and the UK. So the Singapore strategy is is what was formed. Uh and it was basically to use Singapore as a a fort as a fortress as something that would temporarily stop the Japanese navy. It wouldn't necessarily have to defeat them, but just hold them there long enough that the British could send the the rest of the British navy from the UK or wherever else in the India, world they are. Australia. Um, India, Australia, India, Australia. To to Singapore to help out. And they built a huge facility in Singapore, including, uh, I think it was the largest dry dock in the world, um, yeah. the third largest uh, wet dock in the world. And they had enough fuel storage to run the entire British Navy for six months. Uh, It was 21 square miles, this fortress. And Singapore is real, real small. So that's a lot of Singapore that got turned into a naval fortress, as well as having, I've seen actually the plans of it. And as you say, Luke, the only other geographical feature that they have on these maps is rubber plantation, rubber plantation, rubber plantation. So rubber and potentially shooting at the Japanese is what, uh, that's what Singapore is about from 1920 to 1941. So they have this huge fortress, and obviously, World War II is coming, coming along. Um, how, how does that all go, guys? Uh, that's where my notes end. Well, it's, question, it's, question mark. It's something we need yeah. to
1: keep in mind is that World War II in this region is, starts with the Sino-Japanese War. 1931, yeah. The Chinese residents in Singapore were largely pro-Chinese, weirdly. Um, that's true.
0: That's a that's a very good thing to note. Yeah, yeah. The Chinese population in Singapore uh, is very resentful of the Japanese. They were largely
1: first to second generation immigrants, Yeah. and yeah. weren't. They, they, a lot of them would have raised money for the war effort in China, which,
0: and also a lot of them uh, boycotted Japanese products and that's Japanese, true. you know, imports and that sort of thing, mm. which the Japanese did not like.
2: We'll get to that. They weren't using Japanese VHS tapes. Uh, they refused <laughs> to use those. mini discs. No more Toyotas, um, you know.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, we have uh, December 1941, Japan attacks Pearl Harbor, as you mentioned, and uh, also attacks Malaya. There were, I think, three or four large Australian warships that were in the area that were there to protect against a Japanese invasion and uh, were not very well equipped to do so. They were not a- equipped uh, to deal with the Japanese basically blitzkrieg, which they uh, took from from the Germans,
2: d- mainly kitted out with uh, boomerangs, uh, <laughs> di- di- weaponized kangaroos, yeah, yeah. <laughs> blow dart didgeridoos. Um,
0: uh, almost as bad, to be honest. Okay. I watched a documentary where uh, one of the Australian soldiers who served or uh, navy men who who served on one of these ships was sort of, you know, pitifully recalling the fact that they the Japanese uh, were flying in on planes and the uh the guns could only be raised to something like 30 degrees or something something (laughs) along those lines (laughs) so they're kind of going we can shoot up as you said shoot up or throw boomerangs or whatever whatever you happen to have but our our navy guns are not gonna are not gonna take down down. any of these planes because they were obviously built in an era before uh air warfare
1: and and were there were there many of these ships around malaya was it
0: I think it was three, maybe, three big warships around Malaya, all of which were sunk within a day, I think. That kind of sets the stage for uh, the Battle of Malaya, uh, which is overall a a complete capitulation by the Allied forces. There was great propaganda, and you can see some of this on YouTube, actually, of Allied soldiers, Australians and British and uh, Indian regiments as well in in Malaya who were stationed there at the time, and they were all told, like, oh, the Japanese are sort of squinty-eyed, you know... Guys, and you know, once once they get rained on, you know they're they're gonna give up, and you know you can they're so they're so small, you can skewer two of them on a one bayonet and this sort of stuff. Oh, it's, uh, come
1: on, yeah. I recall
2: I recall a, a rumor around Singapore. This isn't from our research. This is from from years ago about how amongst the British, they they genuinely thought and incorporated this into their planning that the Japanese had poor night vision. That's true because as well. yeah, that's they in, squinted. That's in the propaganda. Yeah. And as part of that, they defended less vigorously at night. And obviously, the Japanese took advantage of that because the British were racist idiots. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, c- congrats to the Japanese in that one, one yeah. limited so, a- account.
1: Luke, given all this hubris and poor planning, how quickly was the entire colony lost?
0: So... The The Battle of Malaya was, was uh, as I said, a capitulation, complete capitulation by the Allied forces. The Japanese basically had this kind of blitzkrieg strategy where they would strike fast and move quickly throughout the colony, and the British were just totally unprepared for it. For example, the British forces had said, they're not going to, you know, we're in the middle of a rubber plantation, a giant rubber plantation, full of trees. There's no point in us having any tanks. And then the Japanese yeah. invaded with over 200 light tanks, which... The british forces were completely unprepared Ugh. to to take on didn't the uh,
2: didn't the japanese use a, a use a huge number of bicycles they as also well did yeah that's a that's a very famous approach. image
0: of uh, malaya so they they kind of at, at times there were certain points in uh, the battle of malaya where they were kind of waylaid or their truck transports were not you know not brought up to the front lines in time so they just literally jumped on bicycles or in boats and just kept moving forward uh kept making progress south towards singapore did they
1: did they steal these bicycles
0: i think some of them they took uh, some of them they took with them but they, i think a few of them they, did, they they did steal yes so that Terrible. that was another thing um, was that the, the allied forces were kind of condemned afterwards for not having destroyed things like fishing boats mm. which the japanese then utilized as the the forces the allied forces retreated
2: they're not playing fair
0: yes why would they use our bicycles that's unfair that's uh, <laughs> they were locked <laughs> you no know, yeah, soldiers inexplicably were also told to not harm the rubber trees as they retreated through vast uh, rubber plantations. They were told by you know the likes of Goodyear and that's a, you know these big uh, uh, rubber interests not to harm the trees, uh, which is is just ridiculous. An and move. then of course, as we know now, the Japanese were uh, kind of tenacious and you know very well prepared for this assault. They did not surrender in this entire campaign. There were no more than a dozen of them taken alive. Uh, they also Ooh. pioneered this technique uh, where their snipers would pick off uh, anyone who was saluted. So anybody who seemed to be in command, mm. that's who they would target. To, that's very rude. To impact the, the, the morale of yeah. the Australian forces. Yeah, sorry, uh, to answer your question, Joe, just 55 days after the start of uh, the invasion. So, you know, two months, the Japanese had conquered the entire Malay Peninsula Peninsula. And they were sitting across the Straits of Johor looking at Singapore and yeah, were intent on taking it. So a few days later, uh, 13,000 Japanese troops crossed the Straits of Johor after shelling the island intensely. And again, the British made a very, uh, very big mistake here where they they basically split the island in two. So uh, east and west. And they put the Australians on the west side of the island and the British forces on the east, and the Australians had already... I'm assuming they were, the,
1: the the entry point is the west, right?
0: Yes, the entry point is the west, but the British commanders Oddly, thought that yeah. it would be the east side of the island, uh, northeast of side of the yeah. island. And uh, so they put the Australians, who had already fought, a lot of them had already fought in the, the Battle of uh, Malaya and you know were wounded or ill-equipped, oh. as we'd said. And then a lot of them were also re, uh, reinforcements. So people... Again, there were interviews with soldiers uh, in these documentaries that said they had never fired a shot before the Japanese invaded. Uh, they oh were just God. landed in Singapore and sort of said the Japanese are going to come across those straits and, uh, you know, do what you can. Hey, look.
2: Yeah. <laughs> oh, God.
0: So. Uh, oh, no.
2: Yeah. They put a military field hospital in front of the front door to try to block the Japanese. Exactly. So the Japanese, <laughs> and a bunch of children. Uh,
0: the Japanese did—they they did lose a lot of people in this assault um, coming across the Strait of Johor. Basically, from there they just sort of flooded into the island. Uh, the the Australian troops. There's a lot of controversy about this nowadays, but the Australian troops were were blamed a lot of the time, uh, or have been blamed in retrospect for deserting.
2: The the, the um, cowardly
0: Aussie. Yes, it's a uh,
2: cowardly Aussie. Yeah,
0: basically. The Japanese pour into the island. Uh, after three days of fighting, three days of resistance, the defenses start to collapse. So, yeah, at that point, once the Japanese start to land on the island, kind of people just panic. Soldiers are running. Uh, they're looting.
2: <laughs> Stealing all the rubber they can carry in their pockets. Yes. <laughs> and the thing about this is lines. that uh,
0: it had been emphasized by the British that this is, this is uh, quote, no Dunkirk. So there won't be any rescue for these forces. And there was... Oh, my
2: God. It,
0: so Churchill had sort of said, like, fight to the last man. Uh, don't surrender... You know, don't surrender Singapore. And it's important to note here that there was up to eighty five thousand Allied troops on uh, the island of Singapore, and only thirty thousand Japanese. And at this point, after the whole Battle of Malay, they were they were pretty decimated. Like they were they were they traveled a long way, and they they fought a lot, and they you know made great progress. But they they were not as well enforced and as well equipped, I guess, as as they could have been.
2: Doing it on empty bellies. And, yes,
0: they and kind of raced future. ahead of their front lines and. You know, we're always uh, pressing the attack. So Singapore falls to the Japanese af- one week after that invasion. Uh, Gordon Bennett, General Gordon Bennett of the uh, Australian uh, forces, is largely condemned in, in this because uh, he was one of the few uh, who actually made it off the island, which, you know, is a bit of a... No matter what way you look at it, it's a bit of a cowardly move. He leaves thousands and thousands of his troops behind and uh, flees, flees Singapore in the last days before oh the God. Japanese invade, uh, telling them to put up a brave fight and then fleeing
2: himself. <laughs> he shouted from his dinghy yes. as he sped away. Yes. So so the
1: occupation was pretty brutal.
2: Yeah, I actually, I
0: so I have a quick clip here again, another clip from uh, Lee Kuan Yew this time, who was uh, just a... I'd say what he was about twenty or so at the time. Yeah, he was yeah, a, in his twenties and
1: working as a translator for the Japanese.
0: He recalls here uh, the march of the Allied troops uh, to Changi, which was a military prison where they were where they were kept for a while. They marched eighty thousand troops from the city to Changi, and they were. I wouldn't say marching, just moving uh, for nearly 36 hours. Uh, I've never felt so depressed in my whole life. I mean, it's just like as if the dark ages had descended.
1: Yes, so uh, during the occupation, um, the Japanese, with their classic, um, what would you say? Uh, Vengeance. A, 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 a empathy for, for their... Uh, Savagery. You know, th- they started screening citizens, including children, to see if anyone was had, had anti-Japanese sentiments. And as we discussed earlier, a lot of people had given money to Chinese war effort. And so, yeah, yeah they did have anti-Japanese sentiments. And... They would just took people out and executed them um on the beaches. Yeah, the the so, numbers uh, vary, the,
0: but it's it's somewhere between twenty five and fifty thousand were were executed. Yeah, the, the
1: Japanese claim it was about eight thousand, but you know. Yeah. yeah um, I mean
0: it's it's hard to know, but yeah, they're they're kind of even up to recent times, like uh we'll mention later in the podcast about like land reclamation that Singapore has gone through, but I believe like mm. a lot of even now, like as they go as they do the you know land land reclamation they're they're oh, discovering no. kind of caches of bones and oh, stuff oh like God. this so it's yeah yes
1: yeah, so this is kind of ethnic cleansing sort of thing the japanese it really is. hated the chinese yeah it's it's really upsetting to read about um, this massacre th- th- this kind of process is called soup ching and it it left a generation according to to lee Kuan yew he claims that a generation emerged from the occupation Determined that no one neither Japanese nor British had the right to push us and kick us around and we could govern ourselves, so yeah so this the, the really Chinese important... population,
0: even though a lot of them hadn't actually actively fought in the the battle for Singapore mm. as you mentioned Joe, like uh it was, they were massacred in the Japanese occupation, and that that kind of uh gave them this sense that they were they had bled for the island they had, they had died for this territory, and,
1: and the British hadn't had, defended uh, them, and the Japanese had massacred them. So this was the moment when independence is a way to go.
0: And I, sh- I should just mention here, there are about 130,000 Indian, Australian and British troops that became prisoners of war as the the result of this campaign. And they would be transported all over Southeast Asia to Burma and into Japan and Korea and Manchuria. And of course, there's the, the Burma uh, Railway, which was a... Uh, you know, a place that a lot of POWs died uh, trying to build that railway for the Japanese yeah. forces, which we won't I mean, the, get into the, now. But
2: There's POWs and there's POWs, and and you don't want to be a POW uh, under Imperial Japan. You do not. That, that is no. not the POW you want to be. No.
1: So anyway, um, at the end of the war, Singapore was liberated, comes back under British administration, but everything has changed. Mm-hmm. Um, and people start moving towards self-government, you get trade unions forming, you get um, mutual associations of of kind of cultural groups and religious groups forming, uh, all kind of pushing their own agenda, all wanting to get their own input into how the colony is run. You get a lot of race riots between the Malays and the Chinese. The Malays obviously feeling like it should be their country but the Chinese outnumbered them about 7 to 1. In 1955 David Marshall was the chief minister of the the kind of self-governing compromise that had been come to. Uh, he was of a Persian-Jewish background, just showing the diversity of this this place. He was a big trade unionist, but he, he went to London to negotiate independence and didn't get the deal he wanted, so he resigned. And this right. paves the way for the People's Action Party, led by Lee Kuan Yew, who we've mentioned a few times, uh, to yeah. really become central to... To Singaporean politics, and this guy, this guy is basically the father of the nation. You know, Lee, Lee Kuan Yew becomes the most significant political figure in Singapore for the next
2: thirty years more. Yeah.
1: So his first election was fifty nine as Chief Minister. Throughout the sixties, he's using British um, special branch and their their anti communist laws in an attempt to purge. His rivals from the party, who he thinks have communist sympathies, but there's a quote here from Earl, the Earl of Selkirk, who was the, I think, the governor of of Singapore at the time, the British governor, and he says the Singapore Special Branch have virtually failed to identify directly any communist threats during the last three years. Lee Kuan Yew is quite clearly attracted by the prospect of wiping out his main political opponents of opposition before the next general elections, and um, speaking about how both. Lee and the Malaysian leaders, or the the, Malay, the British Malayan uh, leaders, he says, I believe both of them wish to arrest effective political opposition and blame us for doing so. So this is very much moving towards and uh, decolonizing the region. And and we should note here, I suppose that, that Lee Kuan Yew uh,
0: was a kind of British educated... Cambridge educated... Yeah.
1: So he, he was brought up English speaking, ethnically Chinese, obviously from the name. Ethnically Chinese, but uh, yeah, was
0: was very much yeah West, Western educated and and kind of
1: a very successful lawyer. Um, yeah, in his went hard by life. the name of
0: Harry Lee for a long time until uh, I think just before he, he was elected, he sort of took up his Chinese name in public to uh, to appeal more to the ethnic Chinese voters.
1: Yep. Yeah. And the PAP worked closely with trade unions in its early years, even sharing office space with uh, some of the more radical trade unions, but um, then started to go really against communism because the British hated communism. No more of that. And the, Male- no more the, of that. The, the people in Malaya, the kind of um, Islamic elite in Malaya were not fans of communism either. And Lee's main goal was a union with with the Malayan Peninsula. Mm-hmm. Um, and he wanted to join this this new Malaysia that was being founded by the British, uh, which would include Borneo, Sarawak, uh, Singapore, and what had been called British Malaya up to that point into yeah, a single so
0: state. So the S and the I in Malaysia comes from Singapore uh, when the two do uh, oh, really? eventually merge. Yes, that's about, ah. that's that's apparently where where the name came from. The S and I from Singapore are inserted into Malaya to become Malaysia. Huh.
1: Well, it it didn't it didn't last very long. It did not. There, there were big yeah. racial tensions in, in this new Malaysia founded in 1963, because basically including Singapore pushed the Chinese ethnic Chinese population up to rival the ethnic Malay population. Which
0: Malaysia, Malayas or Malaysians were not uh, particularly happy about.
1: Yes, particularly the, the Sultans and the, the ruling elites. They wanted mm-hmm. it to be a Malay country. They didn't mind there being some Indians and some Chinese there, but they there was big disputes over who would be a citizen of Malaysia. Oh. Uh, like, they were okay with people being resident, but they thought only Malay people should be citizens. And obviously Lee was of a different opinion. Uh His party, the PAP, had a big dispute with Unmode, a major party in Malaysia. And eventually they couldn't, between race riots and, and different economic views for the world, they couldn't come to an agreement on how to make this work as a joint venture. So on... 9th of August 1965, <clears throat> Singapore was expelled from Malaysia. and yeah. forced So we to mentioned to be at, at the top of the show
0: Republic. that independence was not something that uh, <coughs> Singapore initially embraced, and that's why, is because it was expelled from Malaysia uh, after, was it
1: two two years or three? Two
0: years. Yeah, t- um,
1: two or three years. And we have a clip here of, of Lee Kuan Yew giving a press conference up on the treaty being signed that gave gave uh, singapore its independence and he was uh, he was very upset about the whole thing you know, every time we look back on this moment when we signed this agreement which severed singapore from malaysia it will be a moment of anguish i mean for me it is a moment of anguish because all my life see the whole of my adult life. I had believed in Malaysia, in merger and the unity of these two territories. You know, it's a people connected by geography, economics, and ties of kinship. Well your mind if we stopped for a while?
0: So yeah, uh, Lee Kuan Yew's dream of a of a merger with Malaysia is dead, and as as he said, there it's something that he had aimed for his entire life, and so I think. For a few weeks, he just kind of withdraws from public life and sort of reconsiders his position and uh, what he wants to do and how he's going to kind of steer Singapore into, you know, the future.
1: I think the way he phrases, we can't give up. I have a couple of million people's lives to account for. And so he he gets to work becoming basically the hegemony, you know, that from 1968 onwards, People's Action Party wins every election. Sometimes winning every seat in parliament Mm -hmm. Uh, and they are the the only political force of any note in in Singapore
0: one of the one of the first things he does actually because interestingly uh, Singapore becomes an independent nation and because it had been dependent on uh, Britain and then uh, Malaysia doesn't actually have its own army or any of its own military forces at all so um Lee Kuan Yew one of the first things that he does when he gets into into power as as the prime minister of an independent nation establishes a citizens army in 1966 and conscription or uh kind of national what is service. it called not conscription national service sorry is uh is compulsory and remains so even up to this day and it's actually quite a savvy move <clears throat> because uh for a place that's so kind of ethnically and religiously diverse it kind of Everyone forces gets young thing. men to come together and do the same thing and live together and yeah do go through the same training and kind of instills a sense of national pride and patriotism into these people which is
2: identity as well yeah i i have some um some this is off topic a little bit but i have friends who live in countries that have national service and i think it, it it changes their view of the country and it changes their view of their place in the organism of the state that they they see or they're more likely to see them being actually connected with the state rather than it being you know everyone hates their governments Mm. in general uh but if you see yourself as part of the system it means you have a greater greater buy-in and i guess that's what you see with these these 100 successes in elections which for the most part are you know they're free and fair elections um They 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 really liked being Singaporean and they really bought into Mm. what Lee Kuan Yew was 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 selling. I mean, we can we can talk a little bit about some of the less savory parts of it, but for for whatever you might want to say about the guy, he was insanely successful and insanely successful successful
1: without being populist, which is interesting. He he made a lot of moves which didn't make people happy, but they were considered kind of tough medicine. Um and weirdly that was rewarded on a, on a long-term basis i
0: think here is a, probably a good place to to take a quick break actually so we can we can take a quick break and then we'll get to how singapore has become the massively successful city-state that it is today Shine
2: for singapore. this is your song deep inside your Yeah,
0: so we now have this independent nation that doesn't have any natural resources has been kind of cast out from Malaysia
1: and they they see their place in in a in a globalized world earlier than most other countries foresee globalization, mm. and so it's all trade trade trade.
0: Yeah, well, yeah. that's that's that goes back to Raffles's you know initial mm-hmm. idea, I suppose, is free trade, and that's that's kind of where Lee Kuan Yew uh, decides to focus his energy is is kind of trade, as you said, Joe, and uh, kind of business and you know developing a kind of a hub of business uh within singapore
1: it's it's worth pointing out that um homelessness and unemployment were problems when the country becomes independent and so the solution uh so like i mean the 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 pap would largely can be, be considered center right at this point but they built huge amounts of government-funded houses uh really mm. rapidly and 80 percent of singaporeans today live in government-funded housing developments by the hdb
0: yep the government takes a huge role. This is something that we'll see like throughout the 20th century. The government takes a hu- huge role in kind of guiding the country because it is such a small nation. Mm. Uh, the government can exert a huge amount of influence over what the country does. So, for example, one of the things that Lee Kuan Yew, again and his government do is, like you say, Joe, they, they build houses and kind of offer them to people at quite reasonable prices uh, w- with reasonable kind of repayments and uh Lee Kuan Yew I listened to an interview with him he said one of the reasons they did that was because they looked at housing estates around the world and saw that uh people who rented their their buildings or rented their apartments uh didn't take care of them whereas people who owned their homes really did take better care of their surroundings yeah and took responsibility for the place that they lived in and it's actually something that Margaret Thatcher would go on to adopt uh in the UK after, like mm-hmm. kind of modeling itself after Singapore but yeah, even right. today I think it's up to ninety percent of people own their own home in Singapore,
1: which is very unusual. This would be inspired by their socialist background, but then other yeah. things they've done are a lot more right wing. Like I think there's quite low taxes and tariffs. Um, there's a lot of sort of laissez-faire, pull yourself up by your bootstraps sort of approach to employment. You know, hard work mm-hmm. is valued rather than yeah, welfare. It's uh
0: yeah, exactly. They didn't they didn't want a welfare state at all. And yeah, one of the things that uh, the government did was kind of start a lot of businesses so Mm. For example, Singapore Airlines is one of the things that came out of this this period where uh, the government set up Singapore Airlines, which today is a very successful airline, and just said they said you're you're going to be a commercial enterprise and you have to make money, and if you don't make money, we will close you down, basically. And you know, the government did that with a lot of different industries. They kind of set up, so they, um, they kind
1: of get it, get it rolling and then walk away. Yes. It's so like, we'll build your house,
0: kind of f- but we won't clean it. We'll help you get on your feet. But after after that, it's, it's up to you to uh, make a, a good go of it, I guess.
1: But it's also a very authoritarian government. Um, so Lee is prime minister for 30 years. And you get things like sed- and sedition laws, where promoting any kind of dissent between religious or ethnic groups is a crime and is punishable by very severe sanctions. Drug trafficking, which is identified as a problem, we get uh, very harsh treatment and and corporal punishment and the death penalty.
2: Uh, gun crime also yeah. uh, punished very very harshly. I uh, mean, even that's, chewing that's gum. The...
1: There's there's laws. Yeah, chewing that gun, chewing yeah. gum is illegal in Singapore because it Spitting. ruins the streets, and they just went. We're not doing it.
2: What what would you what you have here is a a centrally planned, very author- authoritarian state, but. I mean, they they're they're quite small. So with the central planning, they do become quite quite nimble, and they are able to uh, exploit opportunities in international trade mm. and trends as as they come along. And that's that's why modern day Singapore has been such a success because they the government had this authority. But the balance of that is that they were super authoritarian, and they they did not necessarily grant all the the civil liberties and so on that would be. Uh, seen as sacrosanct in the West. It's a very, very different kind of state to, to it's, most of have in the West. It's almost unimaginable.
1: And there's there's a principle that, that Lee promoted called Asian values. Himself and a few other Southeast Asian leaders looked at this mm. idea, which is kind of um, identifying political features of, of Asian democracies that are different to European democracies. And it kind of focuses on collectivism, you know, the kind of interest of the community outweighs my individual freedom.
2: I used to work in, uh, in a Japanese school uh, and it's very similar uh, ethos. There, there is a, a phrase, it is the nail that sticks out that gets hammered down. Uh, and I see that very much in, in Singaporean societies as I, as I read about it. Like, you know, uh, business, business good, money making good, complaining not so good. Complaining yeah, isn't harmony. Making money is harmony. We want harmony.
0: There's a, a very interesting comparison, I guess, that was uh, drawn in an interview that I listened to with a, a historian about modern-day Singapore. I don't know if it was a comparison that was drawn by Lee Kuan Yew or somebody else, but it was it was sort of like the emphasis on stability. And they sort of said that uh, in the US, for example, or like a, a large like world power is like uh, crossing the ocean on a aircraft carrier where you can jump up and down and kind of make as much noise as you want, but you're never going to move the... Uh, the aircraft carrier, whereas Singapore is is like a canoe, <laughs> because it's so small and like so easy to influence things, you know, and yeah. uh, it's so easy to disrupt
1: the harmony yeah. of the state. And and if one person so said, really you... really wants to convert everyone else to their religion on the canoe, exactly, it's quite easy to do. Uh so
0: the thing the thing was I, that I... you need a strong leader uh, and a strong government was the idea to to kind of keep everybody in line and keep things stable. Or else, it will be very easy to upset this
2: canoe, I guess. I see, I see Singapore, and maybe you see this as well because you live in Hong Kong. I see it as as the kind of weird, creepy, straight laced version cousin of of Hong Kong. That like Hong Kong is a lot more madness and filth and spitting and shouting and protests and strikes and this and that, and then you've got Singapore where it's like no chewing gum, no spitting. That's not harmony. Uh, and and both are enormously successful. I mean, they're between the two of them, they're the two highest uh, uh, GDP areas per capita, I think, in the world. Um, sorry, the two highest uh, economic uh, freedom uh, territories. Uh, Singapore is the second, and Hong Kong is the most. Just to give you some quick facts about the about the Singaporean uh, economy, their economy and population are basically comparable to to Denmark. They are the 37th biggest economy in the world. They are one of only nine countries to have a AAA credit rating from all three of the ratings agencies, which by which I mean uh, Standards and Poor's and, and Moody's and, and Fitch. They are the most trade-dependent country in the world in terms of imports well, and they, exports. They have Because they have
0: no natural resources. Yeah.
2: Exactly. Um, their main areas of uh, uh, internal industry are banking obviously, uh, foreign exchange trade, oil refineries apparently they have 200,000 visitors for medical tourism a year 15 million visitors for tourism normal, biotech uh, 22% of the economy is actually the government, government operations, so the government is is actually still a huge part despite all the the free trade they have, Um, they're a member of the Asian uh, Economic Union which includes several other Mm -hmm. uh, countries including I think La and um, uh, Brunei again. Um, and they have two sovereign wealth funds, each of which has about 300 billion.
1: 90,000 containers pass through the port every day, of which about five stay there. <laughs> wow. And the others just move on somewhere else. So it really is an incredible, incredible melting pot and, and it's something that shouldn't work. You know, its, it's, it's GDP had an 100 fold increase from independence until recent times
0: yeah Mm, so it just yeah from 1960 to 2011 that'll give you an idea of like just how successful this uh this plan has been uh 100 fold increase in per capita gdp so
1: so lee takes the helm with an iron fist and just drives for his goal and nobody has complained hard enough to stop him or his successors going that direction there's occasional protests and they're they're liberalizing the ability to protest now a little bit um the current prime minister is is lee's son um which has led to some disquiet among people who think maybe we're going down a nepotistic way. Um, but, the, but
0: the 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 fact remains, and this is a this is a very important thing to note, is that like we're sort of talking about the fact that it's a quite an author- authoritarian, quite a strict society, and I did notice that while I mm. was there, but. It's very, very successful. That's the thing. Like we just said, the, yeah. the massive increase in GDP. People are very, very successful, very wealthy. Like I talked to a couple of people while I was there. It's a very great, it's a great place to do business. Like business owners are very, very happy there. It's ranked, I think, yeah. as number, the number one place in the world to start a business. Government is very uh, supportive n- of n- you. Number two, number two. Number two. It, people wouldn't continue to vote for this government if if they weren't happy. That's the thing.
1: Like you, Provided you don't stand out, it's a great place. Yeah,
0: there are certain personal liberties that are not afforded to you. But uh, once once you conform, like there's a lot of, you know, a lot of wealth there and a lot of money to be made. And, mm-hmm. you know, the people do seem very happy in my in my experience. They they seem I, like I a very saw a comment from happy... two
1: economists, uh, Ace Moglu and Robinson, and they had a theory hmm. that the lack of opposition of any meaningful opposition to the PAP comes from the fact that society is pretty low inequality. Like there there aren't that many mega rich and there aren't that many super poor people. It's largely middle class. And also, there's a huge amount of social mobility, like you can grow up in the, you know, the worst bit of Chinatown and become prime minister if you want. Mm. Um, that actually
0: leads us on to a, a very interesting point that I just wanted to talk a little bit about, which is population planning. Mm-hmm. In the post-war economy, there was like a population boom in Singapore. Yeah. And much uh, similar to China, I suppose, uh, the government decided to impose a population planning where they they didn't sort of stop people from having kids but they sort of disincentivized them so they had this they had this uh, campaign called stop at 2 and you can look up posters and things like this uh, online about these uh, you know happy smiling kids that you know just says like stop at 2 and you kind of encourages people after they've had two kids or one kid mm. to get sterilized they would uh, so th- things that they would do in uh, for uh, the stop at 2 campaign workers in the public sector wouldn't receive maternity leave for their third child for example uh, hospitals okay. were required to charge higher fees for each child that you had So like your second child would be more expensive than your first And your third would be more expensive than your second sort of thing Income tax deductions would only be given for the first two children that you had right. Large families were less likely to get government housing All the good stuff Third and fourth children were given lower priorities in education A lot of different things And there's a there's a quote here from Lee Kuan Yew Which does not read he's very quotable. well now But mm. uh, yeah, he's very quotable I'll just read this here uh, we must encourage those that le- earn less than $200 per month and cannot afford to nurture and educate many children never to have more than two. We will regret the time lost if we do not now take the first tentative steps towards correcting a trend which can leave our society with a large number of physically, intellectually, and culturally anemic people. Which is uh, nice. you know, one of, the, one of the most unsettling quotes that I've read it's, from him. It
2: is, it's the Stepford Wives as a country yes that's what singapore <laughs> is to me it's like oh wow everything's really nice everyone's really happy and there's great social mobility but like all of this like quite scary stuff is there and the mechanisms Just of the state. don't and look potentially, too closely
0: to? <laughs> look it in the eye so in the 1980s their first kind of stop at two campaign worked so well that they began to have kind of negative uh population growth so the government did a complete 180 and reversed its stance on uh on population control, and I think today they're targeting around 8 million people for Singapore to be its its most efficient. So they currently have five point five billion yeah. people. They're aiming at about 8 million. That's
2: like a 60% bump. That's huge.
0: Yeah, so they now have a, or I'm not sure if it's still in place. I think it's kind of softened since the 1980s, but in the 1980s they, they introduced a new policy, which was have three or more, uh, which is, <laughs> yeah, com- again, a complete turnaround from what it was telling people before, uh, just 20 years before. So then they introduced tax rebates for people who had more than three children, uh, economic incentives again, subsidized daycare. They have now uh, mandatory counseling before you have an abortion. In 2001, uh, the government announced a baby bonus scheme, which paid uh, 9000 Singapore dollars to the second child and $18,000 to the third child wow. over six years to defray the cost of having kids. And they would also match dollar for dollar what parents would... Put into a uh, child development account, so sort of like a four hundred one k or uh, like funds. a savings account. So mm. four hundred one, um, baby. Yes, uh, and interestingly, I, I didn't see this online, but uh, when I was there, somebody was telling me that uh, there are also kind of government uh, encouraged or government organized events uh, for people coming into university <laughs> uh which are basically are like you describing matched,
2: orgies they're, they're kind of like go matchmaking go events
0: <laughs> where i don't know exactly <laughs> what goes on but i i assume it's sort of like team building uh <laughs> things where where uh, guys and girls are have you considered reproducing together work together and uh, yes they've basically targeted uh university at, at as the right age for people to meet each other and then kind of have kids in their early 20s and Maximum uh, baby. Sort of the, uh, yeah. you, you see it Piping when you're there. Piping in Marvin
2: Gaye over the intercom. Yeah,
0: you you see it when you're there. there there's even like uh, kind of stroller parking is a big thing. Walking around Singapore, like they they really push people to have more kids, uh, which is st- still a thing now. And that
1: all sounds yeah. really nice, except for what Mark's going to talk about.
0: Yeah. So well, Mark, do you want to yeah. do you want to give us the the darker side? Uh,
2: yeah. I mean, see the thing is, all that stuff to me seems the darker side because it's also unsettling and like. <laughs> the government says do you want to do you want to get it on and have some babies and they're like that's really creepy that's <laughs> get out of it anyway okay so um uh, both capital and corporal punishment are legal in singapore corporal punishment first so um uh, basically punishment beatings the main way that this is meted out is via caning and when i i saw the word caning i was like oh a little A little bamboo twig across the calves or something quite innocent uh, in kind of a a creepy Victorian uh, schoolboy erotic fantasy kind of a way. Uh, Maybe maybe just me. Just me. Okay. Um, But so in 1993, they meted out caning as as a punishment to about 3000 people. That went up to 6.5 thousand in 2007. So that's it's it's getting more and more popular as an option used by the Singaporean courts. Over 30 offences carry the punishment, and many of them mandatorily. So there are some offences as severe as, as rape that carry it, and as trivial as money lending and overstaying your visa. So Ooh. I hope you're not doing this podcast from Singapore, Luke, because... Uh, <laughs> You do not want to overstay your visa. I will, uh, again, I will bear that in mind. And you'll bear it on your bottom when they get the cane <laughs> out. It is, uh, it is really, really serious. To call it caning is, is a complete misdirection. It is, it is a punishment beating. They take a, a rod. They soak it in water so it gets heavier. Mm. Uh, they strap you down uh, onto like an A-frame, onto a rack, basically. They put padding around your lower back and legs. I like this, uh, because, this to
1: defend your kidneys, because they don't want to hurt you.
2: Exactly. Well, they don't want to kill yeah. you. Yeah. Uh, they want to hurt sure. you. And I I mean, in a somewhat misguided move, uh found a video of this and it is savage. It's it's really, really savage. Like it's really quite distressing.
0: It does break the skin, right, in in, in most cases, Mark. Is that yeah. isn't that
2: right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, if you are not, if the doctors have to basically come in and say you can't beat this person anymore, you might just have extra time lumped onto your prison sentence you in lieu of the extra the, the extra beating. Um, capital punishment in Singapore uh, is mandatory for murder and drug trafficking, among a few other offences. I think some gun crimes also carry the, the, the punishment. It's interesting, Currently, actually. Are... Sorry,
0: just to cut across you, Mark. Uh, Go on. You just reminded me that. When you're coming into Singapore, you have to, you know, like a lot of countries, have to fill in kind of a uh, immigration form that is kind of checked by immigration officials and you know where you're staying and that sort of thing. And it's yeah. every single immigration form is stamped in big red letters saying uh, "death to drug traffickers in Singapore." It's like oh. they make it extremely obvious when you're flying in. Like if you're carrying <sighs> drugs, you better not Which, come in.
1: Despite uh, my objections to the death penalty, does make it harder and harder to do too much sympathy. Yeah. You know, you get to a point where you go, you knew you were, You like, they told you so much they were going to kill you.
0: They really flagged it out. They advice. couldn't have
1: told you yeah. any more. Like, you didn't yeah. not know you were going to die. Yeah.
2: yeah. Still, though, it seems a bit of a, a stiff punishment for the odd doob. Well, no, uh, it's only,
1: like, you need to have, like, 14 grams of heroin.
2: Anyway, uh, Capital Punishment in Singapore. Um, they're on, uh, they're profiled by Amnesty, um, who talk about this quite a lot. But most of the information I, I came across was with a, a long-form interview with uh, Darshan Singh, who is the hangman of Singapore. He, uh, he gave a, a very long interview to a journalist in about 2005, which then got published in a book, a book called Once a Jolly Hangman by Alan Shadrake, if you want to read it yourself. Um, he was hired in 1959 to, uh, he was in his 20s at the time, uh, as a contractor he has executed over a thousand people for the Singaporean government, and nowadays he earns about four hundred Singaporean dollars per killing. He weighs them and measures their the rope according to how much they weigh, also judging their muscularity, basically seeing how much how much of a Wait, fall they need to snap their neck. It's hanged? hanging. They're hanged. Yes, oh, they're good hanged. God. He is That's a hangman. Uh, so he weighs them uh, to make sure that he can hang them. Hang him right. Hang him good. Uh, hang him good. Uh, the knot, apparently, this is insider hangman knowledge. The knot go- goes behind the right ear, so as to snap the spine efficiently. And in the most terrifying part of all of this, he says to every single person before he kills them, "I am sending you to a better place than this." Um, that's chilling. The the statistics I for I did for not realize it was the, hanging. It's hanging. The, the I knew there was a death penalty, they, but I, yeah. I had
0: no idea there was hanging. I don't think many countries these days practice hanging. Uh, even places like China, which does execute a lot of people, I don't. I don't think they hang people still. Uh, yeah. I could be wrong about that, but that's that's so that's in- kind of terrifying
2: up to the early 90s they were killing you know easily double digits but you know 60 70 people a year nowadays it does seem to be less however statistics are very hard to come by the singaporean government know that this is something that they get negative attention for abroad so it seems like they're a little less generous with publishing the statistics but uh they they That's still solution. <laughs> they still they still kill plenty of people a year although now in the last few years it looks like it's single digits um but yeah Capital punishment, corporal punishment, yay Singapore. But
1: before we finish up, can I just briefly talk about languages because this melting pot really—oh yeah—has that. So yeah, it's it's a very interesting
0: place actually. Just again to mention an anecdote from when I was there, they have four languages in it, right, Joe? Like, and they're all kind of displayed quite prominently on yeah, like, public yeah, transport yeah. and that sort of thing. It's quite interesting to hear. Uh, quite unusual, I guess, as well to hear like a this is the next stop is X. In four different languages. So on the MRT,
1: it's four languages? Yes, on the MRT. Okay. So, as I said, it's a multi-religious, multi-ethnic place. There's about 70% ethnic Chinese, but 10% ethnic Indians, but 10% ethnic Malays, and then the rest, you know, European ethnicity and mm. and various other people. Quite a lot of expats, I believe, as yeah, well. Yeah, but, but in, uh, well, in well under 10% of the population. Mm. Um, So the language... Division is uh, oh and and just to again say that the Malays are mostly Muslim, the Chinese are about half Buddhist, um, some Christians, some uh, no religion, and then the, the Indians are mostly Hindus. It's
0: something that we didn't mention before: is that uh, when Singapore gained its independence, they chose English as their uh, primary mm. language. So English is like the language of business so and this commerce, is chosen
1: and then... as the language that nobody owned. None of the ethnic groups were. Yep and it's it's to the its language
0: of, of globalization as we as exactly. we talked about earlier like it's a mm. it's a it's the international language i guess so that's that's what so it's the working
1: language it. and in school they all learn english and their mother tongue um so it's bilingual schooling is how it's done english is the primary mode of instruction and then the mother tongue is a secondary so about 30% of people's th- first language is english About 30% have mandarin um and other dialects of chinese have actually declined since the 80s, as Mandarin became the main Chinese version in, in mainland China. Uh, Tamil mm-hmm. is most popular among Indians, and the Malay language is spoken by about 10% of the people. But mm-hmm. the really interesting languages you get are Sindarin, which I'm not going to talk about, but that's a kind of Mandarin with English words in it, a kind of okay. a, a, a creole. But um, Singlish is fascinating. So Singlish is the Singapore colloquial English which has its own distinct simplified grammar compared to um, to standard English, and also lots of Malay and Chinese words from various dialects. Uh, and you get some really fascinating ways of speaking. It basically began as a pidgin, which would have been Chinese people speaking enough English to trade. And then as it was learned by second and third generations, it becomes a Creole, where it's a, a fully fledged language, uh, just with different grammar. There's a really good episode of Talk the Talk, where they talk about Singlish. It's kind of a language podcast. We'll, we'll link that in the show notes. Um, us three, we're all Angmos, which means like um, gingers. Yeah. What? Yeah, that's what they call white people.
2: Oh, actually, now that you say, uh, <laughs> back in back in my, uh, when I was looking through the stuff that, um was it, Pickering, William Pickering, when he was doing the translations, the, the judges were, um, what was it, demons, and just foreigners were red-haired demons. Yeah. So that's that's an old thing, mm. apparently. That's from more than 100 years back.
1: So you get some interesting words like uh, gostan, which means to go backwards, from the English go astern, huh. from a kind of naval nautical, but it doesn't sound like that. Um, yeah. Westernised Singaporeans who can only speak English are called kantang, which means potato, in, in I forget what language that is. Uh, if you don't understand something, you catch no ball. Catch no ball, I like it. And then there's this oh. wonderful feature where they have, it's like Chinese, and Luke, you might have come across this, uh, and maybe it's in Japanese too, particles at the end of sentences that mean yeah. kind of... The, oh, like the sentence is meant in. Exactly. So la is the most yeah. popular one, which just means this is a statement. It's very popular in Hong Kong as well. So uh, an example is, Ayo, don't stare la, don't be so kaipo. Which means, you know, don't stare, I'm being emphatic about it. Don't be so
2: obviously rude. Um, I We were looking for music for this uh, episode, and uh, I came across a couple of uh, military songs uh, from the conscripts. And one of them included the phrase, and I'm going to be using it in the future. I'm pretty sure that the meaning of the phrase is, uh, I'm having a tough time, but it was shag my balls. Uh, I I will be using that in the future. Shag my balls. Uh,
1: So we're just going to play one of those military songs here because it's in Singlish and it's got a few. You can hear the kind of simplified grammar, verbs not so important, just ideas one after the other. And it sounds like the kind of, it sounds like the mock... Chinese accent that you, people used to do in like British TV before it was considered racist. So, this is where it comes from. Like, words like chop chop and look see are kind of from Singlish uh, pigeon. So, um, here's that song
2: BMTC got
1: condo bull. Sunset, you look pretty cool. We're all black, my jump bro team. but. Run so much, we got time to swim. And so, in there, we hear Malay words like, Can I walk even more? which means I have to walk even more. And you hear an ah at the end, which is like a, a request to the listener, like, Do you agree? Uh, so it's a it's a living language. The government has tried to crack down on it occasionally, but I think they've given up. Uh, the speak good English movement has kind of faded
2: speak good English. Speak English good, guys. <laughs> Get it right. Good English yes, speak. Exactly. Get it right. <laughs> uh,
1: and I suppose finally we should congratulate them on their success in the Summer Olympics last summer. Uh, yeah, Joseph Schooling I think is how you pronounce mm-hmm.
0: his name, beating mm. uh, one of the most successful swimmers of all time, Michael Phelps, in the 100 metre butterfly, which is one of the most notable sporting successes, I think, so far. It's I don't Singapore know if we have any, anything else on sport necessarily. Yeah, Singapore's first uh, Olympic goal, You're right. Uh, for such a young country, I think they don't they don't have a huge sporting tradition, as far as I'm aware. Uh, do you, yeah. Does anybody have anything on that? Or
1: no, no, <laughs> zero, not a thing. <laughs> we, the bag. I, is I think empty. we we have covered a lot.
0: <laughs> Apologies if you're. Uh, uh, somebody in Singapore who happens to be a a sporting hero. Uh, we 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 didn't research you, <laughs> but but please as, get in uh, touch. We've got enough stuff. <laughs> Don't to talk care about you. Never heard of you. Yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah. So we'll wrap it up there. Singapore, like we said, going from a, a small kind of trading post, very small, insignificant island, into what is now one of the most successful cities in the world, with a very author author author. Ugh. Authoritarian <laughs> government, uh, hard ass.
2: Yes, bunch of hard asses.
1: That seems to, despite its flaws, work. Yeah, work very well. Just a
0: couple last things on this episode. We want to say a big thank you to two of our recent Kickstarter backers. That'd be Roland Seymour and Paula Cantwell. Thank you guys so much for your generous support. We really, really appreciate it. Uh, we also want to remind you to visit our sponsor HarryBaby.com. You can get ten percent off using the promo code Eight Zero Days. So yeah, you can find more about this podcast on uh, uh, 80dayspodcast.com or you can find us on Twitter or Facebook under 80dayspodcast. We would encourage you if you've liked what you've heard or indeed if you haven't liked what you've heard or if you have any corrections to uh, go to iTunes and leave us a review or email us on 80dayspodcast.gmail.com. Mark, where can people find more about you on the internet?
2: Uh, Yeah, I got a Twitter at at markboyle86 and I do a weekly blog... Uh, the toner of leak which is on wordpress
1: and joe and people can find me on timetoburn.com that's N E, and i'm also on twitter but i won't try and spell it
0: (laughs) you can find a link in the show notes i guess uh you can find more about me at uh, my website uh, lukejkelly.com or on twitter at the luke j kelly thanks everybody for listening and we'll see you guys in the next one
2: Bye bye